Well, good morning, um, and Happy New Year, as, as Greg has already said. Um, I thought I'd start off this morning by a, a little story. Uh, I don't know if many of you maybe have heard this story about Charles Blondin. He was a tightrope, uh, what do you call a tightrope person? Uh, walker, tightrope walker, yes. And uh, in the 18, 1859, he set up a tightrope um, over Niagara Falls. Uh, how many people have been to Niagara Falls? Quite a few of you. It's a huge waterfall, and I don't know if you've been there. The, the noise is just that rush of power of water falling is, uh, is very obvious and very evident of uh, certain doom if you're walking a tightrope uh, walking across Niagara Falls. Uh, he had stretched it from the U.S. side to the Canadian side, which was about, from what I understand, a quarter of a mile. So that would be from here down to the cemetery uh, of tightrope uh, that he was walking. Uh, I didn't see any pictures, so I don't know how much a rope would sag in that distance, but I would think it would be quite considerable. And the stability, I'm not sure what he had there, but um, it couldn't have been all that easy. However, he did make it look easy. Um, it was 160 feet up from the falls. I don't know if that means 160 feet up from the bottom of the falls or the top of the falls. I'm not sure 160 feet matters one way or the other. If you fall 160 feet, uh, you're just going to be as flat as you would if otherwise. So uh, he crossed once in a sack on stilts. He rode a bicycle across it. He even carried a stove and cooked an omelet on his way across to, uh, I don't know what that looked like, but anyway, he, he had done that, and uh, on July 15th, he walked backwards across this tightrope and into the Canadian side and returned, pushing a wheelbarrow blindfolded, and then he addressed the crowd. Of course, there were crowds on both sides of the waterfalls watching him doing all this, and very impressed, and ooh, ah, and that's, you, you're wonderful, you're great. And uh, he, he then turned to the crowd and said, do you think I could carry a person in this wheelbarrow back across the waterfall? Oh, yes. Yes, you could. I, could, I believe. I've seen you do all kinds of things. You know, a stove with an omelet, that's very impressive. And so who would like to volunteer to be uh, in the wheelbarrow? How many, think, how many volunteers do you think he got for that? Uh, nobody. So... Um, the crowd, did the crowd really believe he could do it if, if no one is, avail, is available to volunteer? Um, and I guess that's what I've, uh, I'm looking at this morning. When it comes to belief in our resurrection, are we living like we believe it? Are we jumping in the wheelbarrow, so to speak? Uh, let's pray before we get started. Lord God, we thank you for this time this morning and as we gather here to worship and to uh, hear your word. We just pray that your spirit would be present with us and help us as we, as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Um, I hate to talk about the subject of death on New Year's Day. It seems like I should be found something more upbeat, something new, a new year. Uh, there's, sometimes there's messages on God doing something new. However, I kind of chose to go a different way. Let's uh, talk about death and our resurrection. Um, but if we look at that a little closer, maybe if I focus on what we are going to inherit, 
Uh, and that is kind of an exciting thing. That is kind of a new thing. We're going to have a new body, and we will not die. So, how about that? Go new. Um, our Sunday school, uh, in our Sunday school class, we studied uh, 1 Corinthians uh, not too long ago, and there was a certain part of Corinthians that I was challenged by, and it's uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, if you wanted to kind of follow along this morning. Paul is addressing a difficult task of combating a, a presupposition that the Greeks had about the resurrection. They believed that matter was evil, and that included the body. And so the idea that the, our soul would be attached to something, a body, which was evil, uh, seemed unappealing to them. In fact, Plato quoted as saying, the body is a prison that binds the spirit and man waits to be released from this prison. I don't know if you remember Paul when he addressed uh, uh, the people of Athens at Mars Hill. He was doing fine up until he got to the point where he started talking about the resurrection of Christ. And then, ugh, we've heard enough. Uh, that's, that's ridiculous. You've gone too far. You're mad. You're crazy. Uh, maybe we'll talk about this again sometime. But whenever the, the barriers went up was whenever Paul talked about the resurrection. Now, what's interesting is that he's talking to the Corinthians who are believers. So to some degree, they did believe in the resurrection. Otherwise, they wouldn't be believers. I mean, you believe in, that's part of the gospel message is Christ rose from the dead. Um, so there was a certain amount of belief in that. However, this hang-up that their culture had about this body being attached to the soul as being evil is something that was throwing their theology into some conflicts, and uh, it began to affect what they believed about Christ's resurrection and, and their own resurrection. So Paul is trying to address these issues in the Corinthian church. And in verse 35, he goes kind of right to the question of what they may have been asking. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul devotes some time here to explain these questions. And he goes on in verses 36 and 37. You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some grain. Paul starts out this illustration that we are like seed, and when it dies, it becomes something different. It becomes a, a plant. We, in farmland, we, we see that every year. We plant corn, we plant beans, we plant wheat, we plant all these things, and something comes up that's much different than what we put in the ground. And Paul further explains in 39 through 41, for not all flesh is alike, but there is one kind for men, another for animals, another for birds, Another for fish, there are celestial bodies and there are terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory for the sun and another glory for the moon and another, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. In other words, God has designed creatures for the environment that he placed them in. Birds fly, fish are in the sea. You've heard the expression, I feel like a fish out of water. That's an example of a fish, or, or in the expression, ourselves, being in an environment we are not designed for. 
I remember uh, longer ago, Jane was at a class reunion here, and I think it was before we moved here, so I didn't really know anybody. And so we went to the class reunion, and I felt like a fish out of water. And uh, so I followed Jane around like this, you know, because my fish, my, gold, <laughs> my goldfish, my little globe of water was right next to Jane, so I was going to stay next to Jane and make sure that that's where I was going to feel comfortable. What Paul is saying here is that God has designed every, everything has its place and its environment. And whenever you take on this heavenly eternal body, you are going to be in, in a different environment and your earthly body is not compatible. So you are going to need to be changed. Paul is saying basically that, that no you are not designed for this new environment. Um, and 42 through 50, Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as the man of heaven, so are we of those who are of heaven. Just as we are born the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. One of the things we notice here is that when he talks there in the early part of that section is that, um, that we are sown in weakness. Uh, the word there is anastheia in Greek. And we, uh, it talks about a weakness that, uh, let's see, frailness, illness, suffering, calamity, um, handicaps that go with weakness. And I think about even the most physically fit person that we can think of is vulnerable to sickness, injury, and death. We like to think we're strong, and we're young. Death seems so far removed from us, it's difficult to recognize its reality and its certainty. But that day is coming. We are weak and frail. However, we will be raised powerful. Powerful beings in the sense that we do not die. We are imperishable. Can you imagine? We can't stay the same here in our, and inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is showing the connection of our bodies that our bodies have with Jesus, the second man. The first Adam was of dust, however, Jesus is a man of dust and from heaven. And because we have faith in him, we are also of heaven. We have some accounts of Jesus' resurrection and what uh, that was like. Jesus was fully human. His resurrection body will be what our body will be like to some degree. Um, if, we, if we go to the scriptures, we see that he f- we can feel his scars in his body. He ate food. He appears and disappears. 
passes through walls, communicates just as he did before. Now the question is, as how much of this is his human nature and how much of this is his divinity, and I'm not sure that I can sit here and tell you with any degree of certainty which are which, but there is certainly a connection that Paul is trying to make that what you've witnessed with Christ's body as a fully man that Jesus was, we are also connected to him in that way. In 51 through 53, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and is this mortal body must, be, must put on immortality. Sleep here is a reference to death. And Paul acknowledges that Christ returns, not all, when Christ returns, not all of us are going to be dead. There's going to be some of us alive. And so that change, don't worry, that change will happen instantly. And so God has made a provision for that as well. And 54 through 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul quotes from Isaiah here, and he is basically taunting death. Where is your victory? You don't have anything over me. Um, The consequences of death are gone. The threat and dread have been removed. So what does that mean for us? How do we live like we believe it? What do we do with that? And he continues in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, whenever we see therefore, we always look to see what it's there for. And... Um, basically, Paul here is saying, therefore is like, live like you believe it. Therefore is everything I just said, if everything I just said is true, then this. And then this is how you should live based on what I've just said up here. Okay, so this means this. It's a law, the lawyer in, in uh, Paul, if these facts are true, then this is also true. And he starts off by saying, be steadfast. Now, this, uh, this word in Greek is uh, haraos, which means being steadfast, morally fixed, firm in position, well stationed, not to have fluctuation or moving off course. I, I get a picture of a ship not being blown off course, but heading in a, in a straight path, like running a race and not slowing down, but keeping on the goal of the finished prize. Be immovable. Now, I looked up what immovable means, and it means immovable. <laughs> That's pretty much it. So I, I think of the, uh, the song that has the lyrics, like a tree planted by the water. You know, I will not be moved. Like a mountain. There's a certain amount of stubbornness that, that comes with this word. Uh, obedience to, to the gospel. 
And then always abounding in the work of the Lord. The word abounding isn't typically seen on any job evaluation sheet. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how, how are we to work abounding. Um, I don't see that on a one to ten scale in your job responsibilities. So, uh, Papa John's doesn't ask in their questionnaire if my delivery driver was abounding in his job. Um, if you're a waitress or a waiter, I guess you could jump from table to table, and then you would be abounding. You'd be abounding. Okay. Maybe you'd just be abouncing. Um, but the word is per se, perisio in Greek, and it means more than enough. Sometimes we look at, uh, I, I picture... Uh, it, we're, we're past harvest time, but I sometimes picture a harvest, uh, harvester with the grain bin full and the grain is, is overflowing onto the cab of the harvester. Uh, it's, it's an overflowing. I think of, of fellowship meals and they go over and above and have much more food than we could possibly need, but that's, what you, that's a good fellowship meal whenever you have that. So that's what I picture with abounding. But it's also when you think about over and above. Maybe do you exceed expectations? Now that you do see on a job description and the work of the Lord. We'll see. We'll use that as a, as a meaning of over and above. Do you exceed expectations? So what is the work of the Lord? Sharing good news, the gospel, making disciples. We do it with enthusiasm and effort that exceeds normal expectations. Jesus says in Luke, uh, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into the harvest. I've heard it's hard to find good employees these days. Many businesses would just like employees to show up and let alone do a good job. What kind of employee in the work of the Lord, are we? Are we good laborers? If God were our boss, are we doing enough labor to be a valuable employee? Are we exceeding expectations? Or are we just lucky we still have a job? Knowing your toil is not in vain, Paul says. Um, toil, the word here is kapsis, and it means properly, it, it is a it's more than just working hard. It's a striker blow that is so hard it seriously weakens or debilitates. Deep fatigue, extreme weariness. Uh, I don't know if toil captures all of that. Um, and uh, I think of labor pains that a woman goes through in giving birth. She toils through that because she knows the certain joy of that baby will be realized. Sometimes we suffer through jobs we hate because we need the financial reward when it's done. And in fact, uh, there's a whole TV show devoted to dirty jobs that kind of fit the, the, the criteria of toil in my mind when I watch that show. Um, sometimes we study hard in our school in order to get that job, the toil of studying. Ask anyone who has served in church ministry of some capacity and hasn't experienced some toil and weariness and fatigue and maybe even beaten down. All that abounding work that exceeds expectation goes the extra mile. It takes the extra bit of effort 
and we will be rewarded for it. It's worth it. <clears throat> a passion and real concern for the loss. What does that look like? Do we look at a lost as though they are headed for the most horrible outcome that could be imagined? Jesus talks about the resurrection for both the good and the evil in John. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the re resurrection of judgment. Now, I don't, know, I don't know that I ever thought about those being resurrected for judgment. I, I mean, yes, the lost are cast into hell. That's a kind of a... a a thing about the scripture that I've kind of made that jump. Lost, go to hell. I've kind of skipped the resurrection part where, well, yeah, they would have to have a resurrected body as well. It makes sense. Uh, our earthly bodies could not handle that burning torment that it's talked about. So uh, those who are lost will res be resurrected with bodies that are created for that environment. That is a sobering thought, um, and I don't know the, I don't know all the, the certainties of that or the specifics of how that works out, but I know that that doesn't sound like a pleasant thing, to 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 have the idea that that as a lost person that God is going to res resurrect you with a body, that is, created for that environment. I don't know if that's different than our, than our body. I, I don't know. If God creates fish and birds with different characteristics for their environment, does that mean, I don't know, these are all questions that one day will be answered? It's above my pay grade at this point. Um, but at any rate, it has a, a, an interesting aspect of how we view the lost. More often than not, this, well, let me back up. Uh, this is an area that I probably was convicted of and, and challenged by the most of this, of this passage. I don't immediately feel compassion and concern for those who are lost. I do, to a large degree, but I don't always. More than often, I, I feel frustrated. Why, why can't they see the truth? Why, why, why are they so blind? I have an attitude of, c'est la vie. Such is life. Uh, there's no skin off my back if you choose to deny God. Sometimes I'm angry when I see evil people actively mock God and his commands or when evil harms the weak and innocent. Sometimes I might feel vengeful and spiteful like Jonah did. I want God to punish those who deserve judgment. I want bad things to happen to bad people. However, in this life, I need that compassion and love for every lost person of what or what they've done. Jesus is our example. While on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, as he was being crucified. Stephen, while he was being stoned, said, don't hold this sin against them, as, as he lay there beaten. 
If I could warn people of an impending doom, such as a tornado or a bridge that's out, wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I have the same level of love and concern and compassion for the lost who will be resurrected to an eternity, eternity of torment? And the last aspect of this resurrection I want to talk about is no fear of death. Now, it seems obvious if we don't die, in fact, we, we live forever, that what's the fear, um, right? However, even in the, with that info we have about the res- resurrection, there are still a lot of questions, but there's still a lot of unknown. And for the most part, we're scared of the unknown. There's, there's uncertainty, uncertainty, fear. But Paul didn't seem to have that fear. Um, And we see many examples of the apostles being quite brave in the face of death. In Philippians, Paul writes this, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is with my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary on your account. This is what Paul believed about the certainty of his resurrection. He believed it with such certainty it didn't matter if he lived or died, and his reason for remaining was to be fruitful, necessary, maybe even for the love of his family, for the love of his church. But if not for the abounding work of the Lord, Paul would be more than happy to die and be with the Lord. That is quite a statement of certainty of his future. It's kind of like strawberry and chocolate ice cream. Both are favorites. So if you don't have strawberry, well, you got chocolate. Favorite. I live, be with friends, family. Fantastic. If not, to be with Christ, all the better. I was thinking as I was preparing this, uh, kind of last minute, um, with no fear of death, it's one thing to not have fear of death in this body, because of the certainty of our resurrection. But in our resurrection body, having no fear of anything happening to my resurrection body, what kind of crazy stuff could you get into if you had a, had a body that you could not kill and no fear of death, not even a scratch, where the mind just goes wild, doesn't it? It has usually something to do with falling, doesn't it? You know, if jumping out of an airplane, uh, maybe not. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Maybe that's off the subject a little bit. But the idea that you will have a body that cannot be killed, it cannot be harmed, it is indestructible. It, you are a superhero. <laughs> so I, I was, your mind can go crazy about that. Um, and maybe there's no adrenaline rush in the, in the new body because you don't fear anything anyway, so I don't know. I lament, all right, just 
going off imagination there. At any rate, Paul cannot be threatened with death. It doesn't scare him. I think of um, things that scare me or don't scare me. Heights, to some degree, is, doesn't scare me. I, I hunt out of a tree stand, and there's a certain amount of, if I'm standing right next to a tree, it gives me comfort. But if I'm standing with nothing around me, now I'm not as comfortable. Um, I don't know, Jeff, you might be able to relate to this. We could be uh, in a, setting trusses on a house, and you could have a wall that'd be as long as this room, and I'm not going to walk across that two-before wall to the back of the sanctuary because I don't think that I can make that. Uh, on just the tightrope thing, I don't think I could do that. However, if we put trusses on this and I can step over each truss and walk to the back of the sanctuary and not touch because if I lose my balance, I'll just touch the truss. I'll just grab my truss. But I can actually not just walk across that wall. I can step over each truss on the way to the back wall because, hey, I got a truss here I can grab. There's a comfort. And uh, there's a certain amount of that that when we talk about our, uh, our resurrection, our death is we have the comfort of trusses on our, on our wall, if that makes sense. Today we are here at East Bend and uh, we're not being persecuted with the severity other Christians are around the world. Um, generally speaking, we are not faced with the threat of prison, the confiscation of property, or even death because of our faith. However, there are cases where a profession of faith in Jesus and obedience to him has resulted in fines and ruined businesses, loss of jobs, verbal hostility, and public ridicule. And there seems to be an escalation of hostility toward Christians. So escalating persecution may be in our future. So this may become more of a reality to us in the future than it it is right now. Do we live like we believe in the certainty of our resurrection? Do we place too much value on earthly things, things that can't, we can't take with us? Do our plans include our resurrection? Our future plans should affect today's choices. Is everything we are doing for the purpose of advancing the kingdom exceeding expectations? Do we feel the urgency of spreading the gospel do we feel concern for those who are destined for judgment? Do we fear death, our death? If we live like we believe it, our resurrection, our lives will be noticeably different to the world. Are we living like we believe it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us so much, and you have promised so much more. And we ask that your spirit would, would instill in us the certainty of our resurrection that would affect every area of our lives so that we might live like we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.